like to turn with me to the book of John. We're going to be in the book of John today. For those of you who are not a part of our usual congregation, our guests, and our friends that have never been here before, we have been studying the life of Jesus Christ through a harmony of the Gospels. And so we've seen him uh, before time in eternity. We've seen him born of a virgin. We've seen him be baptized by John the Baptist. We've seen him be driven out into the wilderness and tempted uh, of the devil. And today we are going to go back and remind ourselves of something that has already taken place, the baptism of Jesus and the role of John the Baptist as the one who was a voice crying in the wilderness, as the one who had come uh, to proclaim that Jesus was the Messiah, that Jesus is the Son of God, that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so lately we've been going verse by verse through the Scriptures, which is what we will do today. But today we're going to focus more on something known as the analogy of faith. And what I mean by that, the analogy of faith means that God is the one that inspired the Scriptures and God is the one that inspired the men to write what they wrote so that you and I could know Him. And if you go from the book of Genesis to the book of Revelation, no S, you go from Genesis to Revelation, what you will find is there is one redemptive narrative all the way through the Scriptures that God created man, man fell, and God's plan all along was for man to fall and for God to come and restore man back to him. And as you read through all of the Bible, you will see this redemptive narrative playing out. Not only does it play out in the scriptures and the proclamations of the apostles, but it is playing out in mine and your lives today. God is redeeming a people for himself, and the way that he does that is through his plan and through his purpose and through his promises, which we find in his word. And so today, what we're going to do is we're going to look at the analogy of faith, but we're going to focus on the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. We're going to focus on the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, our children are not here this morning, but our key words for our worshipers in training will be Lamb and sacrifice and forgiveness. So for you, if you don't know what the word Lamb or sacrifice or forgiveness means, I would hope that you would listen out in our sermon today as we go through the sermon and listen for those words over and over again. Lamb, sacrifice, and forgiveness. So turn with me to the book of John. Let's read the text. We will briefly go through the text, and then we're going to jump into an analogy of faith. Let me share with you a quote before we read the text. This is from a guy named Robert Mouse. He said this, Any view of God which eliminates judgment and his hatred for sin in the interest of an emasculated doctrine of the sentimental affection finds no support in the strong and virile realism of the apocalypse. What does that mean? The apocalypse is the judgment day that's coming. God's wrath and his condemnation and his anger and his justice is going to be poured out on this world. And any sermon, any message that takes away from the harsh reality that God is a holy, holy, holy God is an emasculated sermon. Our God is not 
emasculated. He is real and he is holy and he has a hatred for sin. But his law shows us our guilt. His law shows us that he is the coming judge and he is going to come and enforce what he says. But the gospel of Jesus Christ shares God's mercy for those who are under the condemnation of that wrath. And unfortunately, we as fallen humans, we have a tendency to push away and to not think about the eternal things, the important things, the things that really matter. We scatter our daily conversations with our habits and our hobbies and our careers and our wants and our dreams and our hopes. And all of that is nothing but fig leaves to color up the fact that we need a forgiveness for sin. We need the gift of eternal life. We need Jesus Christ. And so we have to warn people that there is a coming judgment. Solomon said in the book of Ecclesiastes that it is better to go into the house of mourning than to go into the house of mirth. Solomon said it's better to go to a funeral than a wedding. Because it's at a funeral when people shut up and take time to realize that life is but a brief moment. And we have to understand that we are accountable for every thought, every word, every action, Everything that we do, we are accountable for those things. I'm going to answer in eternity for what I feel and what I think and what I hope and what I dream and what I do with my time and what I do with every breath that he has put in my nose. And thankfully for those who know him, thankfully for those who have turned from his wrath and his judgment, they have found mercy in the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Have you ever thought about that? So let's look at this text together. Uh, John 1, verses 29 to 36. It says, the next day he, this is John the Baptist, saw Jesus. It's very important. He saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he on behalf of whom I said after me comes a man who has a higher ranking than I, for he existed before me. I did not recognize him, but so that he might be manifested to Israel, I came baptizing in water. John testified, saying, I have seen the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and he remained upon him. I did not recognize him, but he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, He upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. I myself have seen and I have testified that this is the Son of God. Again, the next day, John was standing with two of his disciples and he looked at Jesus as he walked and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. So as we think about this text, I want to quickly go through each of these verses and explain to you what's going on. Number one in verse 29, John sees Jesus. Jesus tells Nicodemus in John chapter 3 that no man can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. The, the, even the ability to see Jesus, to behold the Lamb, is a gift from the Spirit of God. And John sees Jesus coming. He sees him, and he identifies and says, Look, 
Here is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Now, I want you to think about who John is preaching to. He is preaching to the Jews. He's preaching to the Israelites. They've all come out into the wilderness to hear his message. And I doubt if there's very many Gentiles out there listening to him. But listen to what John is saying. There is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Have you ever thought about the fact that he takes away the sin of the world? Now, there's still sin in this world, is there not? But for the one who sees Jesus, he takes it from them. And we need to understand that the Jewish mind was wrapped around the fact that their Messiah had come to save them. It wasn't about the Hittites and the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Perizzites and the Romans and anybody else but them. So when John is proclaiming that the Lamb has come to take away the sin of the world, it's not the whole world entire. It's talking about all of God's people from all over, from every tribe and every tongue and every nation. He has come to save the world. And remember, from Genesis 1 to the life of Abraham, there was no such thing as a Jew. And God saved countless people from the time of Adam to Abraham. Then he established the, the nation of Israel to be a light for him in the world. A special people. An elect, a, cho- a chosen people, a holy nation, a peculiar people. And said, you're going to be my light in the world. And instead of taking the light of God and using it to show the world, they used it to shine upon themselves and say, look at me. I'm God's chosen people. I'm special. And I got a religion that you don't have. And I got a, I got a righteousness that you don't have. And I'm special. And they used that light to shine upon themselves and instead of using it for what God meant it for, which was to shine into their hearts and show them their sin, to humble them and keep them choosing and trusting in God. And so when John is saying, there's the lamb, he's talking to the people of Israel because they know who the lamb is. And we're going to see that in just a few minutes. But that lamb has come to seek and save a people for himself of every tribe and every tongue and every nation. And so we see that in that verse. John sees the lamb and identifies him as this is the lamb, the one that takes away the sin of the world. There's no other way to be forgiven. You can't do it through your good works. You can't do it through your good singing. You can't do it through your church attendance. You can't give, do it through your tithing. You can't do it by loving your neighbor as you love yourself and loving God with all of your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength. You can't do it because you are not good enough. It takes a Savior. It takes a Lamb. Well, why? Well, Paul teaches us in the book of Romans. In Romans six twenty three. it says... The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so each and every one of us in this room either get the wages of sin, which is death, or we get the gift, which is eternal life in Christ Jesus. And the way that a holy, 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 just God can offer you forgiveness is because that lamb died on that cross so that you could have that salvation. 
He took all of the punishment that you deserved, and instead of putting it on you, he placed it on his only begotten son who he loved. And he died on that cross so that you could be afforded the gift. Jesus took the wages you deserve so that he could give you the gift that you could never earn. And the children, when they hear about the lamb, the children of Israel, when they heard about the lamb, they knew exactly what he was talking about because for almost 2,000 years, they had been sacrificing, 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 sacrificing. Now, in verse 20, 30, it says this, This is the one coming after me who has preeminence over me. Look at that verse, verse 30. It says, This is he on behalf of whom I said, After me comes a man who has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. So a couple of things really quickly. Number one, Jesus has the preeminence. John the Baptist, in just a couple of weeks, we're going to hear John the Baptist say, I must decrease and he must increase. I need to take the back seat and let him do the driving, right? And so we understand that he says, this is the one, the preeminent one. He existed before me. Now, those of you who have been a part of our, our, our church know that just a couple of weeks ago, Elizabeth was six months pregnant when Mary went to go and stay with her. So who was pregnant first? Elizabeth. Who was born first? John. And John is right here telling us that Jesus existed before him. He's making sure we understand that this is the eternal Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Verse 31, I did not know him. Right? Verse 31, I did not recognize him, but so that he might be manifested to Israel. I came baptized. So John is saying, I don't know him. This is his cousin. Right? So he does know him. But what he's saying is, I did not know that this was the Messiah. This is Jesus of Nazareth, my cousin. But now I know him. As Messiah, I know him as my Savior. I did not know him as Messiah, but so that the Messiah could be manifested to all of Israel, I came baptizing in water. John is the voice proclaiming in the wilderness that the Messiah has come. The prophesied one, the one that Malachi said, there will be a voice crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. And so John said, I didn't know who he was, but I came baptizing so that he could be manifested of who he is. Verse 32 says, John testified and said, I bear witness. I witnessed the Holy Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven and to abide or to remain on him. Right? He says, I bear witness. John saw him and he bears witness. That's what we're supposed to do. We see Jesus. We witness Jesus, right, to others. We see him, we share him with other people. And so John testified and said, I did not know him. This is verse 33. This is the second time now that John has said, I did not know him. I did not recognize him. I did not recognize him as Messiah, but God, the Holy Spirit, who sent me to baptize with water, said, the one upon, so the Father, God, told John, he said, the one on whom you see the Spirit descending and abiding on him is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. He's the Messiah. And so when Jesus came out of the water, the Father in heaven said, this is my Son in whom I'm well pleased, 
right? And then John the Baptist saw the spirit that sent upon him. And what John is saying is, guys, that's my cousin Jesus. I had no idea that he was the Messiah until the Holy Spirit came down and descended on him. Because God told me that I would see the one who is the Messiah. So John is recognizing and helping us to recognize that Jesus is who he says he is. Verse 34 says this. I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. Behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us that we should be called sons of God. If you are in this room today and you have a regenerate heart and the Holy Spirit lives in you and you are a born-again, blood-bought child of God, you are a son of God. You can sing that song, Behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us that we should be called sons of God. But you are a son of God by adoption. You were first a son of Adam. And through regeneration, through the new birth, you became a son of God. But Jesus is the eternal son of God by nature. He is God in the flesh. And that's what John is saying. Look, there's the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Look, there is the Son of God. And that is the one thing that separates the Christian from every other religion out there. Every other religion out there says you've got to do something to get to God. And Christianity says, no, God did something to get to you. God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes on him will not perish but have everlasting life. It's not what you do, it's what he has done. And what he has done is he sent his only begotten son to die and take a death that we deserve so that we could have a life that we could never earn. So John is saying, I myself have seen and testified this is the son of God. And then in verse 35, it says, again, the next day, John was standing with two of his disciples. As we go further into the text, uh, in, the, in the future, we're going to find out that John had a whole group of people following him around out there in the wilderness. He had his own little church going out there. But what's eventually going to happen is all of John's disciples are all going to be pointed to Jesus. So John is standing there with a couple of his disciples, and look what he says. He looked at Jesus as he walked and said, Behold the Lamb of God. That word behold is all in the Bible, and what it means is look, see this. Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. So what I want to do now for the rest of the time that we have together is I want to behold the Lamb. I want us to go all the way back to the beginning and realize that this culmination of Jesus' baptism and John's witness of him the culmination of him going to that cross and dying on that cross and be buried in a grave and three days later being raised again has always been a part of God's eternal plan, a part of God's eternal decree to save a people for himself. It's always been the plan all along. And so we're going to go back in the text of the scriptures and we're going to see that. Turn with me, if you will, uh, to Genesis 3.21 or you can look on the screen behind you. Uh, and we'll have that verse there for you as well. Genesis 3.21, this is um, just after Adam and Eve had sinned, and Adam and Eve were in the garden, and they were hiding in the bushes. They had their, they were, their, their nakedness was covered with fig leaves, and, and it says, uh, Genesis 3.21, okay, 
He, don't, he didn't put the text in, so you're going to have to have your Bible or you're just going to have to trust what I'm saying from up here at the pulpit this morning. Genesis 3.21 says this. Now the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. They were naked. They were ashamed. They were covered in fig leaves. And thankfully, God came down in the garden looking and said what? Adam, where are you? And he said, here I am. I'm in the bushes. I was naked. I'm hiding. Why are you hiding? Uh, Because I'm naked, right? And he said, who told you you were naked? Did you eat from the tree I told you not to eat from? What is this that you have done? And God confronts Adam in his sin. He confronts Adam in his sin, but mercifully... It says that God, not Adam, God took an animal skin and clothed the nakedness of Adam and Eve. Well, before this time in the Bible, there had never been bloodshed on the earth. But God took an animal and shed its blood and took the skins from that animal and he clothed Adam and Eve's nakedness. It's funny how you learn things, but I, I used to work with a lot of kids and teenagers, and I was working with some little 11, 10, 11-year-old girls one day in a class, and we were learning about this story. And it never really dawned on me till I had a little kid ask me this, but she said, she said, Mr. Ronnie, she said, was Adam sad that the animal died? I had never thought about that. But every one of you in this room that has pets know that our hearts break when our animals are hurt. Well, why? Because God put Adam and Eve in charge of all of creation, and he told them to nurture it and take care of it and protect it and watch over it and rule over it. Right? Unfortunately, some of our pets rule over us, don't they? But the reality is, is that, yes, Adam was brokenhearted. It was the one of the first times that he had to recognize the consequences of the wages of sin is death. And what God did is he took the immediate punishment that Adam and Eve deserved and he put it on that animal. He took the judgment they deserved and poured it on that animal. And through the death of that animal, he clothed their nakedness and their inabilities and their shame. And it's a beautiful picture of what Jesus has done for us. God the Father took all of the wrath and the hell we deserved and poured it on his lamb. And now we are clothed in his righteousness. Beautiful picture. So already in the book of Genesis, God has already established the fact that the wages of sin is death. And the gift of God is eternal life in Christ. And so what we're going to find is is that God continues to demand of people sacrifices. Without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sin. So turn with me now to Genesis 4. Verses 3 and 4. You might not even have to turn. It's probably one page over in your Bible, but watch this. So it came about at the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. And Abel, on his part, also brought of the firstling of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had uh, regard for Abel and for his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain became very angry and his face fell. Well, what happens? Abel and Cain, both Cain and Abel both bring a what? An offering, a sacrifice 
to present to God. Well, what does that tell us? It tells us that God imprinted upon Adam to teach his kids the necessity of death for life to come. And a lot of times we blame Cain for bringing fruit instead of a blood sacrifice. But the reality is, is the Levitical system has a place in place for fruit and grain offerings. It was not the problem of what Cain was offering. It was the heart behind what he was given. He hated God and didn't want anything to do with God. But he was trying to, he was doing it because he had to, not because he wanted to. But we see in the expression of Abel and his offering that he was willing and able, right? And he wanted to please God. So he brought the best that he had, the fattest one that he had, the best thing that he had. How many of us offer our time to God, right? How many of us give him about a minute and 45 seconds right before we close our eyes of a prayer? And how many of us give maybe like three minutes a week to reading the Bible? But yet we can devote all kind of time to the things that we really enjoy. We can sit and drool over a, a three-hour movie on Netflix and not even think that we've wasted three hours. We give of what we desire. And our sacrifices are an expression of our love. And God gave his son to show you how much he loved you. You see how wonderful that is? But Abel pleased God. Cain did not. And you know, you guys know the story. What did Cain do? He hated his brother. And so what did he do? In his rebellion to God, basically this is what he's saying. Okay, God, you want a sacrifice? You want a blood sacrifice? I'll give you one. And he killed his brother. The Bible tells us in the book of Hebrews that the blood of Abel, the blood of Christ is better than the blood of Abel because the blood of Christ screams out, it is finished, it is paid in full. Abel's blood is crying out, pay him back for what he's done to me, God. Jesus' blood says, it is finished. They are forgiven. And so we see this lamb, this, this theme going on. Let's turn again to Genesis 22. Genesis 22, verses uh, 6 through 14. Now, this text is going to take a little bit longer, but I want you to bear with me. Genesis 22, verse 6 to 14. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son, and took him in his hand and the fire and the knife. And so the two of them walked together. Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father, and he said, Here I am, son. And he said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide himself a lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together. They came to the place where which God had told him, and Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood and bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, do not stretch out your hand against the lad. Do nothing to him, for now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Then Abraham raised his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him a ram in the thicket caught by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him 
for a burnt offering in the place of his son. Right? Now, it's not coincidence that Abraham's son has wood on his back walking up a hill. Most people are pretty certain that the hill that he is actually walking up right there is a hill called Calvary. It's in the same place. And so here we have Isaac, the promised son, with wood on his back walking up a hill. And what does his father have in his hand? The knife and the fire, the judgment. And they get to the top of that hill, and he ties his son to the altar. You know why they have to tie the sacrifice to the altar? Because sacrifices don't like to be sacrificed. And even in our own lives, when we sacrifice God, sometimes we have to get, we have to sacrifice kicking and screaming, don't we? We reach in our pocket and put a little money in the offering plate. We want to kick and scream about those kind of things. Right? We have to sacrifice some of our time to go to church. We kick and scream about it. But the reality is, is that he tied his son down to that altar. And he, but he, he asked his dad, he said, Dad, where's the lamb? Where's the lamb? He knew that there was supposed to be a lamb. And what did he say? God will provide a lamb. And I want you to understand that in the Jewish mind, when they heard John the Baptist, saw him pointing at Jesus and saying, there's the lamb, immediately they knew what he was talking about. They're sons of Abraham, and they knew the story forward and backward, and they knew exactly what he was saying. That's the sacrifice. Turn with me, if you will, to Exodus 12. Exodus 12. This is the last really long passage, and then we'll get to some shorter stuff. Exodus 12, verses 1 to 12. Now, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be the beginning of months for you. It is to be the first month of the year to you. Speak to all of the congregation of Israel, saying on the tenth of this month, they are each one to take a lamb for themselves according to their father's household, a lamb for each household. Now, if the household is too small for a lamb, then he uh, and his neighbor nearest to his house are to take one according to the number of persons in them, according to what each man should eat. You are to divide the lamb. Your lamb will be an unblemished, spotless male... That's very important. A year old, you will take it from the sheep or from the goats. You shall keep it until the 14th day of that month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel is to kill it at twilight. Now, for the Jews, the twilight would have been the dawn of the new day. That's when the new day takes place after sunset. But not only that, when do we need the sacrifice the most? For our what? For our sins. And so when the, as the darkness comes, that sacrifice is what we need. And so they're to kill it. Moreover, they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the house in which they eat. They shall eat the flesh that same night. So they're supposed to kill the lamb. And I don't know if y'all guys know this or not. I've always found this very interesting that when you see the tabernacle and the, the children of Israel bringing their sacrifices to the temple to be sacrificed uh, or to, to the tabernacle, a lot of times we think that they would just hand the sheep over to the priest and the priest would kill it, but that was not the case. The father of the house would bring the lamb and he would slice the lamb's throat and then hand it over to the priest to be taken care of. There had to be a personal recognition that this should have been me. 
there had to be a personal recognition that if it's not for the mercy of God and not for this slain lamb, God's wrath would be poured down on me and my family. And a lot of people don't realize that. Now, once the temple got set up, they, they would bring the offerings to the temple and the priest would do all of the slaying. And everything. But at that time in the tabernacle, it was the, the head of the family that would come and bring the sacrifice. And so we see in this text, it says in verse 7, that you take the blood and you put it over the sides of the door and over the top of the door. It's very important to note that we don't put it on the floor of the door because we're not to trample over the blood of the lamb. We're not to step over and walk over it. It's on the sides and on the top. And what did he say? He said, they shall eat it that night, roasted with fire. They shall eat it with unleavened bread. We're going to have communion today, and, and, right? and our bread's not puffy. Right? And bitter herbs... It's not the best tasting of bread. It was not designed to be that way, by the way, guys. It's unleavened bread. It's all it's got is some olive oil and a little bit of salt in it and some flour. That's it. It's nothing fancy. And it said, and they shall leave not any of it over till the morning, but whatever is left until the morning, you shall burn it with fire. Now, you shall eat it in this manner with your loins girded and your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand, and you will eat it in haste. This is the Lord's Passover. For I will go through the land of Egypt on that night, and I will strike down the firstborn of the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the house where you live. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you or destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. When he sees the blood. Behold the Lamb of God, and he would shed his blood on that cross to cover our sins. And right now, the Father is looking down on you and I. And for those who have turned and trusted Christ, he no longer sees our sin. He no longer sees our nakedness. He sees us clothed in the lamb's skin, in the righteousness of God. But for those who have not trusted him, when the, when the judgment passes over, there will be no spared mercy. God's wrath and his hell will be poured out on those who do not know the blood of the Lamb. And we need to understand that that's, very, that's eternally relevant. What does God see in you? Does he see the blood of the Lamb of the Son of God? Does he see you covered in his forgiveness and his righteousness? So, uh, that's the Passover. And now for 2,000 years almost, the children of Israel would all sit down and have this meal. And every time they would have this meal with the Passover lamb, the, uh, the father of the house would tell them the story about how God rescued them from Egypt, right? And we've talked about this in the past. That's a picture of God saving us from Pharaoh, who is the devil, and saving us from uh, the slavery and the bondage of Egypt, which is the slavery and bondage of sin, and setting us free to be his people. And so it takes the shedding of that lamb's blood in order to be set free. All right, a couple more verses, and then we'll be finished. Now, Isaiah 53, if you turn there with me, that's about middle ways through your Bible. Isaiah 53, and I want you to listen at verses 4 through uh, 12. Isaiah 53, verses 4 through 12. Now, as I read this, what I'm going to ask you to do is, if you're not reading it in your Bible, is just to listen to what it said here, because you can take this passage of Scripture and read it to the common man out in the street, and every one of them without thought will tell you who this is talking about. Right, look what it says. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. 
Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted, but he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging, by his stripes, we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed and afflicted, and yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is silent before the shears, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for this generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgressions of my people, to whom the stroke was due. His grave was assigned with a wicked man, yet he was with a rich man in his death. Because he has done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth, but the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief if he would render himself a guilt offering. He will see his offspring, he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hands. Now, you can take that text of Scripture and read it to anybody you want. And when you hear he was pierced for our transgression, when he was led like a lamb to the slaughter, that he was buried with a rich man in his death. Like we all see that and say, oh, he's talking about Jesus. But the problem for the Jewish people is, is this was written 700 years before Jesus was ever born. And Isaiah the prophet, inspired by the Holy Spirit, was saying, this is what your lamb is going to look like when they come. This is what your Messiah is going to look like when he comes. And they missed him. John was pointing at him and said, look, there's the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And most of the people did not receive him, did not believe him. Why? Because they were looking for a conquering king. But we know that Jesus conquered through his death. All right? So uh, two more passages and then we'll be done. All through the Old Testament, we've seen this lamb, the lamb, the lamb. Sacrifices, blood. The wages of sin is death. Every time they cut one of those lamb's throats, that's what they were thinking. This deserves to be me. I should be the one with this knife at my throat. The wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. And we all know that reality. We all know it. How many of you go out to the cemetery? Once a year and place flowers on the grave of somebody that you know. And it still hurts, doesn't it? Right? Why? Because death and sin are real. And Jesus has come to save us from that. The wages of sin is death, the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So when we turn to the New Testament, let's look at two passages there and then we'll be done. 1 Corinthians, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 7. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, Corinthians. 1 Corinthians and verse 5 and 7. And this is what it says. Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump just as you are in fact unleavened. For Christ, our Passover also has been sacrificed. You see what Paul's saying? In the Old Testament, the children of Israel, for seven days before they sacrificed that animal, were to go around with feathers in their house and sweep all of the leaven out of the house. In the Bible, leaven is a picture of sin. It puffs us up. 
You see? And so for seven days before they sacrificed the land, they were supposed to go around and sweep out, all, get all the dirtiness out of their house, all the leaven out of their house. And at the end of that, they were to sacrifice the lamb. And so what Paul is saying is, if you are a child of God, if you have been delivered from Egypt, if you have been delivered from this world, the flesh and the devil, if you have been set free to be a child of God, then get all of the leaven out of your life because our lamb has already been sacrificed. The blood is over the door and the sides. And when he sees the blood, he will pass you by. Paul is making sure that we understand that those Old Testament scriptures were not just there for history lessons. They pointed us to the greater reality of who the Lamb is. And that is exactly what John the Baptist is doing. There's the Lamb that takes away the sin of the world. Now, one last passage, and then we're done, I promise. Turn all the way to the back. The good guys win. That's what the book of the Revelation is. It's a revelation of Jesus and who he is and what he's done for us and what he will continue to do and the hope that we have in him. We are conquerors in Christ Jesus. And I want you to look at this vision that John has in Revelation 5, verses 6 through 10. This is at, in, in heaven, a, a revelation of a vision that he has in heaven, and it says this. I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb. Standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes on which the seven spirits of God sent out to all of the earth. And he came and he took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Right? He grabs the book out of his father's hand, the book of his decree, of his providence, of his will of who he is, the book of life. He grabs that and said, when he'd taken that book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each one holding a harp and a golden bowl full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song together. Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seal. For you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and every tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. See what he's saying? The lamb that was slain. And because of what he's done, he has a people that will sing a new song. And so John is pointing us to the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. God is pointing us to the answer, the way, the truth, the life. God, John is pointing us to the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and mercy and truth. God is pointing us to him and saying, see him. See the Lamb and realize what he's done for you. See him. Receive him. Believe him. Trust him. Walk in him. Turn away from this world. Turn away from sin. Turn away from self and turn and trust in what Jesus has done. I pray for each and every one of you here that you have trusted him. And if there be someone here today who has never trusted him, my prayer for you is that you will repent. Turn away from trusting in yourself. Turn away from trusting in this world and turn and trust Jesus Christ 
the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Amen? Now that we have proclaimed his truth and his promises, we have his truth and his promises displayed before us this morning at this table.